Well, I want to welcome you to both of our campuses today. If you are joining us at the Riverview campus, I want to especially welcome you. Uh, last week, I heard uh, from the city of Riverview that you guys crushed it. You killed it at our city gathering in the park there to celebrate Christmas. And uh, way to go. We are so proud of you. Way to go. One church at two locations. It's incredible uh, that we get together together. So let's talk about this book a little bit. This is called a Bible. It is the best-selling book in the history of the world. Did you know this? That almost every single year, almost 100 million copies of the Bible are printed around the world every single year. Now, in recent years, the hard copy, old-fashioned style printing of the Bible is actually dipping in numbers, but the download version of the Bible is skyrocketed. As a matter of fact, the Life Church Bible app is the most popular app in the history, or one of the most popular apps in the history of the world. Isn't that incredible? Uh, it is available, get this, in 2,426 languages currently. No other book in human history even comes close. And what's more staggering is when you consider that the oldest book in the Bible, uh, the book of Genesis, was written about 3,500 years ago. To think that people are still reading that today is just mind-blowing, right? It took over 1,600 years for the Bible to be completely written and assembled together, 1,600 years. And so you think it takes you a little bit to get your paperwork done, right? Well, try that, 1,600 years. It's pretty incredible. Uh, the Bible actually contains 66 smaller books that are assembled together uh, to, to, to the Bible that we hold in our hands, to the whole Bible. Um, and the book of Revelation, uh, which was written about 1,900 years ago, is the newest book. Uh, there are roughly 40 different authors uh, in, in the scripture from radically different backgrounds. And what's so amazing is if you were to read the Bible and, and just take a cursory read through the Bible, you would see that these 40 different authors spanning in 1,600 years write with incredible continuity. There is a consistency of message and theme throughout the scriptures that's literally staggering to think about. And here's what's really, really amazing, uh, is that we are still reading this today by the millions. And, and I want you to think about this. Even this weekend, around the globe, hundreds of millions of people will gather in rooms like this to talk about this book to figure out what it says and, and what it means to their lives today. Now, it's a staggering thought when you think about that because think about how crazy it is that people like us, we are a modern people. We build skyscrapers. We fly in jumbo jets. Think about this. We, we carry around a cell phone in our back pocket, which is hooked to this thing called the internet, which is housed in this thing called the cloud, somewhere that's invisible, right? And it contains more information than any one human being could ever read in an entire lifetime, right? We, we have brain surgery performed with incredible accuracy. And yet, think about how crazy this is. A modern people like us were gathered to read words that were originally carved into a stone, written on leather, and paper made from weeds. Think about how crazy this is. And yet we still think it's important to our lives today. Let me tell you something, friends. We've been just trying to get around this idea that this book is at least different. Could, could we not agree? Matter of fact, let me ask you this. What do you think the odds are that people a thousand years from now will still be talking about this book? I'm going to guess pretty doggone near 100%. They've been talking about it for thousands of years, and I think we're going to still 
be talking about it. And I don't think you're going to be able to say that of too many other books. Am I right? There is just something special. Could, so could we just start with, with that as our landing point, our starting point? Could we just say that this is at least a different sort of book than all other books out there? Can I get a yes or a no? It is a different kind of book, even if you don't believe what's written in it. Now, here, let me state the obvious. This book is popular, but it's not popular with everyone. People have tried to ban it and burn it and discredit it and to eliminate it. Uh, some governments have made it illegal to own a copy of it. Uh, some governments uh, make it illegal, even to this day, uh, at the penalty of death to spread the message contained in this book. And yet, again, it, it survives, which is pretty amazing. And so, in the very least... This book has a hold on humanity unlike any other book. Um, but it is so debated. It is so scrutinized. And I think it is worth the discussion. So maybe you've heard something like this, quote, the Bible is a product of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times. And it has evolved through countless translations, uh, translations, editions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. That was said in the Dan Brown, fictional movie Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code by the character uh, Sir Lee Teabing. I don't know if you read the book. Um, maybe you've seen the movie or read the book uh, or you've heard something like this. You can't trust the Bible. Anybody ever hear that? Come on, have you? I think you have, if you pay attention at all to culture. I mean, the, uh, you know, the, the effects of this movie uh, from 2006 and this book, uh, has mo the attention around this movie has definitely died down a little bit, but skepticism in Western culture toward the Bible, I would say, is at an all-time high. Wouldn't you agree? Skepticism toward this book is higher than, than ever. And so I think it, we need to talk about some of this skepticism straight on. I think we need to just tackle it. And so I would like to talk about some of the reasons why people doubt the Bible and some of the reasons why people like me tend to believe that it is true. So you ready for this? Are, oh, that was not overwhelming. I hope it was better at the video campus because that was not convincing. Are you ready to talk about some of the reasons people doubt this book? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So let's do it. I think one of the first ones uh, goes like this. We're going to just tackle these straight up. We're not going to hold anything back. And I think one of the very uh, uh, first things that you hear people say is, how can a smart person like you, how can somebody who is smart possibly believe the Bible is true when there are so many contradictions in it? Right? Have you heard this before? Um, if you go to the net, there are all kinds of websites out there um, that, that fuel this debate, that there are all these controversies, all these questions, all these errors, all these mistakes in the Bible. Have you, have you heard this? Right? Now, most of these uh, websites are, are fueled by atheist thinkers, but they do pose some very, very good questions that I think are worth good answers. I think there's some, out, some thought out there that needs to be answered, and, and that's what I want to do. Um, so, because I think that if you begin to think deeply about these issues, and I think if we start to study and slow down a little bit and think about these, the, you'll find, I'm telling you, you'll find that the contradictions that they so often talk about, about aren't even close to an actual contradiction. Uh, one of the things that, uh, if we're going to talk about this issue of contradictions and mistakes in, in the Bible, is there's a little phrase I want to give you that you have to keep like at the top of your thinking when debating the authenticity and the uh, viability of the Bible. And you ready for this? You may want to take a picture of this so you can think about this later. I think this is so important. S two statements 
can differ from each other without being contradictory. Did you catch that? Two statements can differ from each other without being contradictory. So, for example, uh, in, in the Bible, there, is, uh, there are these numerous passages that record the same story about Jesus being in the city of Jericho and meeting a blind man. But there's differences in the way these stories are told. Now, now listen, um, it's true that in, in Matthew's gospel, it's, we're told that uh, Jesus runs into not one, but two blind guys. But, but when we go to Luke and we go to Mark, the same story is told, but we're told that there's only one blind guy. We're, we're told that there's only one blind guy. And, and so people who read this stuff and think about this stuff, they go, well, right there, there's a contradiction. And, and for sure, that invalidates the whole thing. And they just throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. But friends, um, this is far from a contradiction. I want us to think about this. Neither of these statements denies the other Right? Neither of these statements deny the other, but rather one simply gives more detail than the other. So suppose that you're talking to the mayor of your town, of your city, and the chief of police at City Hall one day. You're talking to both of them, right? And then a little bit later, you run into your friend Jim, and you tell him uh, that you had a nice little chat with the mayor earlier that day. And then an hour later, you run into another friend named John, and you tell him that you, you had a nice little chat with the mayor, oh, and the chief of police. Now, when your friends John and Jim get together and they start to compare notes, they're going to go, hey, wait, there's a contradiction here, right? Because one guy says it was only the mayor, and the other guy says it was the mayor and the chief of police. But does one make the other wrong? Come on, is there a contradiction to this? No, 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 no. It would only be a contradiction uh, if, if you told Jim that you only had a chat with the mayor, right? Does that make sense? So just because something differs does not necessarily make it a contradiction. Um, it's like when, when Jesus is giving a story in the gospel records, right? He tells all of these parables. He tells all of these stories, and he goes from town to town. And, and what's interesting is if you track the scripture closely, Jesus will, will give the same parable in, in, in two or three or four of the gospel stories, and they're all a little bit different from each other. And people look at that, and they go, well, right there, I'm telling you, that's why the Bible can't be trusted, because they differ a little bit from one another. So let me give you a little inside scoop on the life of a preacher. Preachers reuse the same stories. We reuse the same illustrations. And we tell them differently according to who we are talking to and what town we're in, right? So, for example, when uh, I get invited to come and teach at our middle school community called Fuel, uh, I will tell a story. I'll dial into a meaning. I'll dial into a punch of it. Uh, and and I'll, I'll mine it out there and, and just go for it there. But then, oftentimes, I'll come to this gathering on the weekend and I'll tell the exact same story, but I'll tell it in a different way. And I'll change uh, the accents of it. I'll change the, the, the drive of it and what I'm really trying to dig at. Why? Because generally speaking, adults aren't so much into fart humor, <laughs> right? And so you dial it according to your crowd. And I actually think, friends, that, and I want you to think deeply about this, I actually feel like if I was to read through the Bible and there are three different people or four different people recording the exact same story and they were at the exact same scene and every single word lined up, what would you call that in the court of law? Collusion, right? You, you would assume, no, 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 something's not right here Be, because they're all exactly the same. They obviously got together, got their story straight so they could put out one straight story. And I actually feel like this makes the scripture authentic, that those differences... 
actually are, are different men watching the same thing, and each is impacted differently by God's spirit, and they write and they record what impacted them the most. And so one guy dials into one thing, and one guy dials into another thing. They're telling the same story, but they're different ways to tell what you've seen because each person is unique, right? And it's the same for you. You're all at the same family gathering and something happens and you all have a, de a different takeaway of it. Because why? We're all unique and we're impacted differently. And so we record and we repeat things differently. Does that make sense? So let's tackle a couple of these uh, controversies, right? Or these contradictions. Um, and I just went to these websites and there are all kinds of them out there and these are some of the more popular ones. And so the first one that we're, I just want to talk about a few of these very quickly is, is one of them is how did Judas actually die? How did, there's all kinds of talk about this on the internet. It's very interesting. How did Judas actually die? So let me look at this. Uh, Matthew 27, 5, it says it like this. Pay close attention. So Judas threw the money into the temple and he left. And then he went away and he hanged himself. So he died by hanging himself, right? Um, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. But look at Acts chapter 1, verse 18. It retells this story in a slightly different way. Now listen to what it says. It says, with the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. So that, there's an agreement there. He went out to a field to go, to go do something, right? Um, but there he fell, what does it say? He fell headlong, his body burst open, and all of his intestines spilled out. So which is it? Did, did he die from a hanging, or did he fall off a cliff, or jump off a cliff, or throw himself into the rocks, and his body went everywhere? So what is it? Is there a contradiction here? Friends, there's no contradiction at all. These are complementary stories where one gives a different set of details than the other. He died from hanging. And just like any human being that hangs around on a string for a couple days, what, what do we know from the human body? It bloats, right? Like a balloon. It swells like a balloon. Y'all with me so far? And, and so a guy comes along and sees this body hanging there, and he cuts the rope, and what happens? His body falls to the ground. Maybe it rolls down the edge of a hill. Maybe he is on the edge of a cliff or something of that nature. And he hits the ground. His body bursts open. Is it a contradiction? No. It's a complementary story where one gives more detail than the other or further detail than the other. All we know is that it was gross any way you slice it. Right? So y'all with me so far? Let's look at, look, at, look at another one. Look at this one. This is also very, very popular. It's about uh, the resurrection of Jesus and the angels. Maybe you've heard this story before, but the angels that supposedly visited Jesus uh, at his resurrection. And here's how it reads. Um, Matthew 28, 5, it says this. The angel, the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that, uh, that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified, right? So how many angels were there? <laughs> it's not a trick question. How many angels were there? One angel, the angel, one, okay? The angel, one angel says this, right? Now, now look at this, look at this. John 20, verse 12 says the exact same story, but it sets it up a little bit different. And, and John says he saw what? Say the word, two angels. Ooh, controversy, right? Listen, John saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. So how many does John record? Two, bammo, contradiction, right? Th this is the problem. No, go back to the story of the mayor. Different accounts does not make a contradiction. Here, here's the issue. Where there are two, there's always, help me out. Where there are two, there's always one. 
And, and, and so Matthew, he's dialing into what the angel is actually saying. He, he's more enthralled, enthralled in that moment that, wow, I am seeing something out of the ordinary and I'm hearing something extraordinary. I'm going to write that down. While John comes along and goes, oh my goodness, I could imagine seeing one angel, but not two. And so he's dialed into like, there's not one, there is two here. This is really freaky. This is like blowing me away. This is like my mind is blown up. So he's going, there's not one, there is two. So he's dialed into a whole different thing. And he doesn't record what the lady even says in that passage. It's different, right? They're, they're not contradictions. They're different accounts of the same story. So when you study this stuff, I think the contradictions begin to fade away. Uh, one after another literally go away when you stop and you think about each and every one of these supposed contradictions. Um, so let me talk about another area of contradiction. Um, there are supposedly a lot of lifestyle contradictions, and there are lifestyle contradictions between the Old Testament and the New Testament. How many in the room are aware of this? Lifestyle differences. What is expected from people in the Old Testament is not expected of New Testament Christians. Anybody aware of this? Anybody? Okay. So what you learn when you read the scripture is that in the Old Testament, there are these laws that godly people tried to practice, that they tried to obey. Um, and, and, you know, some of these laws were a little bit crazy. They seemed a little bit crazy to the modern reader, like don't eat shellfish, you know, uh, don't eat pork. Now, pause. What Christian does not like good bacon? I mean, come on. I mean, it's crazy, right? Uh, uh, you, you can't uh, trim. Men could not trim the sides of their beards. And, and some of y'all in this church are trying to still live that one out, right? Uh, it's very popular now. Um, there's actually a text in Leviticus uh, that says this, that, that this must have been a big problem for them to have to write a law about this, but it says that inside of the church, a man could not enter the church with a crushed testicle. Now, we're not practicing that one. I mean, really, I mean, we're not. We're just not going to do it. I mean, like, how do you even check for that? I mean, seriously. What do you say, right? Listen, most certainly, there are contradictions in, in the lifestyle of expectation between Old Testament believers and New Testament believers. And we as Christians say, absolutely, there are. Uh, we would say it like this, that, um, that we don't follow the Old Testament laws. They don't apply to New Testament Christians because simply put, we believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of, of the law and became the final payment for what the law demanded of us. Does that make sense? That, that most certainly uh, there was a day before Christ paid the final payment of our sin. We believe that you had to do certain things in order to show that you were trying to live under God's grace. But those days are gone for us because Jesus came and was the one who obeyed all of the law and lived it out perfectly, both in the things that he had to do and the way in which it was done, the love required of the law. Jesus fulfilled it all. And you and I, we go, we're guilty as charged. You and I, we go, we're sinners. You go, I can't be perfect. Jesus did that for us. And I accept his payment for the debt of the law that the law requires from us. That is why there's a contradiction. And we would actually say it like this, that it would be wrong and against the Bible itself if we went back and tried to obey those laws because Jesus came to be the fulfillment of the entire law and to bring us a new covenant and a new relationship with God. Y'all good with that? All right, so I hope this is making, are we making sense so far? 
Okay, because we're going to go forward, okay? Um, I got a lot to cover here. Uh, so we've, we've been talking about these contradictions, but there's another thing that people say uh, that is very, very concerning. They, they say that, well, uh, doesn't history prove the Bible wrong? I mean, how can we really trust it when history doesn't line up with the Bible? Friends, listen, if you know me at all, you know that I love all this old stuff. I'm the weird guy sitting at night reading books literally written 2,000 years ago. It is crazy. I, I love all this, and I could talk about it all day long, but I'm going to try to keep this as short as possible. There is, friends, I want you to know this. There is a remarkable agreement between the historical record and the biblical account, even to the littlest, smallest details, such as dates, geography, coinage, and who was ruling when and where. Uh, in fact, in the very few cases that there have been uh, vivid historical contradictions between the Bible and the historical record, archaeological discoveries uh, have tended uh, to, to prove the biblical account of history over and over and over. And let me just give you a couple very, very popular ones. Very popular ones. Um, if you've studied the Bible at all, you might know, if you've read the Old Testament part of the Bible, that there was an empire that the people of Israel battled against over and over. They were called the Hittite Empire. Anybody remember this name, the Hittites? They're crazy. The Hittites, you know, the Hittites. You with me, okay? The Hittites, okay? Uh, and you read the Bible, uh, it's as clear as day that there was a Hittite empire that the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, were constantly warring against. But here's the problem, friends. Did you know that the historical record for the entire world held not one single outside of the Bible reference to the Hittites ever until 1906. And so up until 1906, all of the people who debated the Bible, all of the scholars and all of the historians would say, clearly the Bible can't be trusted. It made up an entire empire. Crazy. Bible is invalid. Well, in 1906, uh, literally, there was an archaeological dig that confirmed the existence, not only of the Hittite nation, but they found 40 different cities buried 50 feet under the sand, each belonging to the Hittite empire. And so the credibility of the Bible that was called into question was validated by the historical discovery. Here, here's another example. I love this one. In Daniel chapter 5, uh, there is a biblical reference to a king named Belshazzar over the kingdom of Babylon. Now, one of the things that we know from history is that Babylon uh, kept incredibly detailed records. Um, we are privy to their history almost like any other uh, empire out there because they wrote it all down, right? And, and so uh, there was this reference to this king named Belshazzar um, being the king, but the historical reference up until 1956, listen to this, never existed. And so people would say, scholars and people who study this stuff, they would say, well, the Bible's wrong. They can't even get the kings of Babylon right. And we know what the kings of Babylon were. We know who they are. And the scripture is simply wrong. Until 1956, there was an archaeological unearthing of three stones that contained the in inscribed information that solved the puzzle for us. It seemed that the man who was king of Babylon at this time decided to lead his armies to a faraway battle. And a custom of the Babylonians, we learned, was that when a king would be out of the capital city, guess what they would do? Guess what they would do? Come on, it makes perfect sense they would have another king, their son, installed as king just in case dad doesn't return to battle. Does that make sense? And we learn, guess what? That the biblical account was right because it says for this small 
period of time, even the smallest detail, the scripture got right and said, no, 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 no. The king was Belshazzar. And we learn later that he was. Make sense? Make sense? You all with me? Um, so once again, the, the biblical account passed the test of histor historical accuracy, and it does so with incredible detail. As a matter of fact, it can be said like this. In the last 100 or 150 years, scores of archaeological finds have solved um, what once used to be an unexplainable contradiction between historical account and biblical record. The more we discover, the more we realize that the Bible is correct. This happened with the city of Jericho. Did you know that there was no biblical, or there was no extra biblical reference to the city of Jericho ever in history until 1946 or 47? It's crazy. And then all of a sudden they found the city of Jericho and they were like, oops, the Bible's correct. The Bible's correct. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the world's foremost archaeologists, uh, expert, his name is Nielsen Gluck. Uh, he's passed away now, but he once said this, quote, it may be categorically stated that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. And this man was not a Christian. He was an archaeologist, president of Hebrew Union College. Let me repeat what he said. It may be said that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. And friends, this is big. You need to know that, that when you put the Bible up against any other true source in all of human history, any other major world religion, you will see that the Bible alone passes the test of historical credibility. All other true source, whether it be the Koran or the, or the Jehovah Witness Bible or the Mormon Bible or the Sanskrits or any of the other major writings in, in, uh, of, of religion around the world, all of them miserably fail the credibility tests of history and archaeology. All of them. And I'm thankful that the Bible stands tall in history. Because if it's wrong about history, then it's wrong about what it says about history. Does that make sense? Okay, so uh, here's another thing, moving beyond the historical stuff. Um, people say this, they say, it's so old, how can we be sure it all hasn't been changed? Have you heard this before? How can we trust it? It's been changed and translated so many times. How can it be trusted? Now, let me tell you something, friends. I have found that most people who give this criticism of the Bible, honestly, are woefully understudied. And I don't mean to insult anybody if that's what you believe. Um, the manuscript evidence for the scriptures is absolutely overwhelming. And I'm not even going to spend much time on it because you can simply go to, to the internet and find this out for yourself. It is absolutely overwhelming. But here's what I, what I want to tell you without going into too much detail. When we go to college, we send our kids off to school, we pay ridiculous amounts of money, and they get in a world civilization class or they get in a philosophy class and we are told to read Aristotle, Plato, uh, Socrates, and the like. Have you heard of those names? Anybody. Uh, these, by all accounts, in, in the history of the world, are the major writers in the history of the world. We still refer our kids back to them every time they go to college. You understand this, right? But did you know there is almost no writing about their lives and the writings themselves cannot be verified through history? So in other words, the writings that we tell our kids to read, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, and the like, they have almost no credibility to them at all. We do not know if that's actually them who wrote what they say they wrote. There's no credibility. As a matter of fact, um, 
there's this thing called the, the test of history, the external test of history. You probably know this already, but there are no original ancient writings at all of any kind. Do you, do you know this? So the author of any ancient book, it could be Julius Caesar, Caesar it could be Augustine, uh, it, could be, uh, um, it could be Plato, Aristotle. There are no original writings from any of them, including Peter, James, Matthew, any of them. There's no original writings of anybody in history. What we have is what we call near originals. Now I want you to understand that there's a test of near originals that are just so blatantly biased one way and not the other. Listen, with Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates, there are a total per author of around 10, what they call 10 near original copies, 10. The dating of the earliest copy we have for any of them is about a thousand years from the time they actually said to have written their work. A thousand years later. Now, would you call that a near original? Okay, a thousand years later. How accurate do you think you're going to be a thousand years later for anything? Okay, but the Bible is different than that. The Bible is different. There are 14,000 what we call near original works from the Old Testament and 24,000 near original works from the New Testament with the earliest of the writings being between 25 and 30 years after the writer actually wrote the material. Enough so that when people wrote it, there were people alive that lived it and could validate it or discredit it. Do you, do you see the difference? overwhelmingly, historian after historian after historian, any honest historian and scholar would tell you that the Bible leads antiquity in what they call manuscript evidence. What you hold in your hands has been studied and validated through the centuries like no other book ever, ever. You can trust that your English version is an accurate portrayal of the original writer's intent. Y'all with me so far? Okay. Y'all with me so far? Okay, good. You guys are killing me up here. I want you to know that. Okay. Uh, and so here's the next thing I want to talk about because a lot of people struggle through this belief of the Bible. And here's one of the biggest things that people put at me. And maybe you've heard this before. Isn't it crazy to believe in miracles? You've heard this before, right? I mean, this is what people say who don't believe. They say, well, how can, how can a smart guy, how can a smart woman believe in miracles? Anybody ever hear this before? Okay, you know what I'm talking about? This is a common uh, test, right? I mean, you think about it, miracles of floods and arcs and whales and walk on water and, you know, making blind people see. And I mean, how come I don't make blind people see, right? I mean, how come I don't see anybody being raised from the dead? And, and, and so people will say, how can you stomach this kind of thing? How can you believe a book that has so much to do with the miraculous side of life? And my response to that is this. Here's my response. Uh, I make a distinction between God and the Bible. Now, let me explain this a little bit. I make a distinction between God and the Bible. You see, I have no problem uh, by definition saying that God is non-contingent, all-powerful, limitless creator of the world. We've been talking about this for several weeks now, right? And, and so listen, I mean, if God is God, if God is limitless and has the power to create, he is most certainly, friends, he is most certainly capable of things, uh, capable of causing famines or floods, capable of healing, and capable of even making a dead man rise Again, if he's God, this seems like a small job. Y'all with me on this? If he's God at all, uh, miracles are merely recreational activities for an almighty God. 
Now, friends, even if you don't believe in God, you'd have to agree, though, if there is a God, if there is a creator, if there is somebody who can make something out of nothing, if that is true, even you would have to say that a miracle is no big deal. So the Bible is different than God. The Bible is, is a task given to men and women to record the events of their time. And they wrote down some of the biggest events. Um, like, you, you understand this, right? You're, you're talking 1,600 years of history. And they're writing the highlight scenes, right? You don't play the football reel and it's this guy sitting on the bench all day. You, you play the big moments, right? And so the Bible records the big moments. That was their job. And friends, what I've been trying to validate all, all evening long is this idea that if the Bible can be believed, then why can't miracles be believed? Because if God is true, then it's no big deal for him at all. And besides that, listen, besides that, do you realize that virtually every miracle done in the Bible, almost all, were done in public places, seen by people from all walks of life, people who could have contradicted and, and put an end to these rumors of miracles. Over and over and over, uh, instead of it being stamped out and crushed out, people walked away going, woo, I saw it myself. I wouldn't believe it if I didn't see it. And guess what happened? Over and over and over, hearts that were drawn away from God suddenly turned toward God because they see something extraordinary. They see something, dare I even say, miraculous. Um, otherwise, people would have just said, forget about it. It's all a lie. For example, like, like if, uh, if I was in New York, uh, when the day that Twin Towers came down, and if I wrote an article saying, like, wow, I was there, and I saw a giant UFO hovering above the Twin Towers, like, for three days in a row, and I tried to publish that, there wouldn't be a publisher in the country that would write that, right? Because there were tons and tons of witnesses that would say, you're crazy, you're crazy, right? They would have stamped it out, and it's the same thing with the miracles of the scripture, and I'll even go a step further. One of the reasons I believe the miracles of the scripture to be true is because common and ordinary men gave up their lives willingly because they believed that those miracles were true. They changed their whole life and almost all of the earliest followers of Jesus, all of them literally said, I saw it with my own eyes and I'm willing to die and they paid with their life. Let me tell you something about humans and I think you probably get this. People will die for a whole bunch of stuff you will give up your life for a whole bunch of things. But you won't give up your life for a lie. Nobody does. Nobody does. And so, um, this idea that says, I can't believe because of the miraculous, I, I think you need to rethink that a little bit. Now, um, so, y'all with me so far? I want to talk about one more big, big area. Um, one of the things that people say about the Bible is this that all that Bible talk about prophecy sounds a little bit too much like Hollywood for me. It's just got to be made up. It's just too weird. Friends, I'm a relatively well-adjusted human being. I study and I think about this stuff. And I would humbly say to you just the opposite, that one of the reasons that leads me to believe is the prophetic nature of the scriptures. Now we could spend all morning long and we could just dial into so, we could literally spend a week or two just talking about all of the prophetic stuff in the scripture, even around Jesus, right? Like I don't know if you realize this, hundreds of years before Jesus, before he was ever born, it told us 
how he was going to get born, who he was going to get born to, the lineage and the line of his family, what city he was going to get born in, what his ministry on earth was going to be like. It predicted that the government would one day arrest him and beat him. Did you know that? All of that was written hundreds of years before Jesus. But I want to dial in to one little specific prophecy that I'm going to tell you, I think it will blow your mind. Um, I, I want to read it to you, and then we'll talk about it. Here's what is recorded in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was one of the prophets, uh, one of the big prophets in Israel's history, and uh, he lived around 600 B.C. Okay, so he's, his writing is dated around 590 B.C. That's when his writing is dated, okay? And here's what he writes in Ezekiel 26. Listen closely. Verses 1 through 14. I'm just going to uh, read them all. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 3, I think. It says this. Uh, Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Tyre. Uh, Tyre is not a tire. It is a city, okay? Uh, it is a city. So Tyre is a city. And I will bring many. What does it say? I will, I will bring what? Come on, say it with me. Many, many nations against you, like the sea casting up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I will scrape away her rubble and make her like a bare rock. Out in the sea, listen, out in the sea, uh, she will become a place to spread fish nets. For I have spoken, declares the Lord. Um, she will become plunder for the nations and her settlements on the mainland. Tyre is an island. But they had a part of the city, we're going to learn here in a second, was on the mainland, okay? So it says, um, and her settlements on the mainland will be ravaged by the sword. They will know that I am the Lord. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. From the north, I am coming to bring against Tyre, Nebuchadnezzar, king of where? Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots, with horsemen and a great army. He will ravish your settlements on the where? the mainland with the sword, and he will bring up a siege works against you. Build ramps up to your walls and raise his shield against you. He will direct the blows of his battering ram against your, your walls and demolish your towers uh, with his weapons. His horses, now remember, he says it's not just Nebuchadnezzar, but many nations. Remember that, many nations. Okay, listen. Many nations will do this. His horses will be so many that they will cover you with dust. Your walls will tremble at the noise of war horses, wagons, and chariots. When he enters your gates as men enter the city uh, whose walls have been broken through. The hoofs of the horses will trample all of your streets. He will kill your people with the sword and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. They will plunder your wealth and loot your merchandise. They will bring down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones. Listen, this is it. They will throw your stones Timber, timber and rubble into the sea. So this is all happening on the mainland. And then he's saying, when they're all done destroying you, what they're going to do is they're going to pick up all your garbage and throw it into the sea. Does it make sense so far? Everybody tracking with me, right? Listen to this. I will put an end to your noisy songs and the music of your harps will be heard no more. I will make a bare rock of you uh, and you will become a place to spread fishnets. You will never be built rebuilt, for I am the Lord uh, who has spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. Now, listen, according to this prophecy, things do not look good for the city of Tyre, right? Not at all. Uh, notice the incredible detail of this prediction. Ezekiel first says, he calls out uh, this city by name. He tells us that not one, but many, right, many nations will come against Tyre. He even singles out the first nation that's going to come against her, which was what? Babylon, led by 
King Nebuchadnezzar actually gives the name of the king, which is really interesting. Um, he's also specific that Tyre's fate doesn't stop there. Uh, he says that Tyre eventually will have all of the city knocked down and will have the debris thrown into the ocean and it will not be rebuilt. It'll become a place where fishermen hang out, right, and spread their nets to dry. But here's what you need to know about history. This is fascinating to me. Um, the city of Tyre is one of the greatest cities at this time in the entire antiquities, in the entire ancient world. Uh, this would be like me saying in the next few years, New York is going to be attacked and it's going to be destroyed and it's going to be knocked to the ground, never to be rebuilt again. People would think I'm crazy. And they thought Ezekiel was nuts for predicting that one of the greatest cities in the world would be destroyed. Um, this would have been absurd to those people. So during Ezekiel's time, when he wrote this, get this, the city of Tyre was 2,000 years old at that time. At that time. It was one of the most well-established cities, most important trading centers in the entire world. The city was originally built on a large island, which is located about a half a mile off the coast of Syria in the Mediterranean Ocean. The island has incredible ports where large ships would come in, which made it a mecca for trade and transport. Uh, a smaller island was right near the main island, and they literally linked these two islands together with building and bridges. So it became one continuous island. Approximately at the height of their glory, the city of Tyre had a two and a half mile uh, uh, radius around the wall and the outer walls, get this, the outer walls averaged 150 feet tall. And they had regular what they call battlements surrounding the entire city. Uh, this city uh, grew so quickly uh, that the city outgrew its capacity on the island and so they established a colony on the mainland just a half mile away. And that became very, very popular and grew and grew and grew and grew. The combination of Tyre's outer walls, its strategic location on an island, and the mainline, main, mainland as its first line of defense seemed in, uh, uh, invulnerable. Uh, Tyre was considered not only to be a great city, it was considered to be impregnable by the forces of the world around her. Uh, everybody thought Ezekiel was just nuts for making this kind of prediction. But all you have to do is look at history to see what actually happened. According to the historian Herodotus, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, laid siege of the city of Tyre starting in 585 BC and it ran to 572 BC. 13 years. Nebuchadnezzar uh, was able to attack and destroy the mainland, but listen, but was never ever effectively able to conquer the actual island itself. He was never able to cross the impregnable walls. So he lays this 13-year siege. That's a long time. He says, I want this city. Eventually, the supplies of the city become so low that they simply agreed to give over the control of the city to Nebuchadnezzar. The mainland was destroyed, but the island at that point was not destroyed. And that's exactly what Ezekiel said. It was the mainland that would fall first. The island would come later, right? And, and here's what's really interesting. People would say there's always a counterpoint to history, right? Somebody looking at it and trying to explain why things happen. And the explanation for Ezekiel's writings, many scholars would say, well, the problem is, is Ezekiel was writing uh, at the time of Nebuchadnezzar. He was writing almost in real time. So some scholars would say, well, maybe if we just moved his writing forward a couple years, 
maybe he's actually writing these events in real time, or in the very least, he knows which way the political winds were blowing, and he knew that an attack was imminent, and he was making his predictions via what was to come that was obvious to everybody. And so some people would say, well, it's not very big of a prediction at all. But you must go on in history, because here's what happens next. In 333 BC, there was a young ruler coming to his power. His name was Alexander the Great, king of the Greeks. Anybody ever hear of him? Alexander the Great? Well, what's interesting is Alexander the Great comes and marches up onto the mainland. The mainland city had been essentially rebuilt. He easily conquered the mainland, and he sends vessels across the ocean way and basically tells them uh, to, to surrender, to give up. And what was interesting is the king of the, uh, of the, of the kingdom state of Tyre, at the time his name was Azamelchus, um, and he says, I'm willing to pay you tribute but you and your men will never occupy our lands. You will never occupy our island. I'm willing to pay you a tax if you just leave us alone. Well, that wasn't good enough for Alexander the Great. Anybody who has studied history knows that that did nothing but tick Alexander off, right? And he decides we're going to take this thing. He gets so angry that he orders that the mainland, which had been rebuilt over the last 140 years or so, he, he ordered that it be torn to the ground Every single timber and stone be cast into the sea. And Alexander the Great, if you know anything about your history with Alexander, he thought so big, he thought so bold, he tells his army to build a bridge out of the garbage from the mainland. What did it say? Your buildings and your town will be destroyed and thrown into the sea. And Ezekiel sees this from God. And he says, there's going to come a day when a great army is going to come and they're going to throw all of your town into the sea. And these people are going, you're crazy. But that is exactly what we learned that Alexander the Great does. He builds a half a mile bridge into the ocean and he builds it so wide that it's history records that he was able to build what they call siege engines on this, on this bridge. You know what a siege engine is? It's those things like that catapult, big, huge rocks. And guess what he was catapulting rocks toward? the impregnable walls of Tyre. And eventually, he had such control of the land and such an amass that the people in Tyre could do nothing but receive blow after blow after blow after blow, and eventually the walls fall, and, and Alexander the Great comes and marches on the city of Tyre and utterly destroys it and tears the city from limb to limb, so much so that it becomes known as a fishing village. Fishing village. Now, it says many nations. We learn that the Seleucian Empire comes. Guess who comes after them? Rome comes and reattacks the city. And guess who comes after them? The Muslim Crusaders come. And if you were to go to the island of Tyre today, you would see a bare rock and a quaint little fishing village without a city standing at all. Coincidence? Maybe. Maybe. But friends, I think that it'd be hard to dismiss God's hand in all that. I just think it would be hard. And the Bible is full of story after story like this. But here's the most important thing. This is where I want to land. Um, I want to play you just a simple video. It's going to take a couple minutes and we'll be out of here. But the most important thing about the Bible to me is that the Bible speaks accurately about me. When I read the Bible, it, it looks into my soul like nothing else. It convicts me. I see that when it talks about the shallowness of man and the brokenness of spirit 
and the sinful destruction that we bring upon ourselves. I look at it and I say, it's true. And there's a God that comes from the Bible that redeems us and calls us. And I want to show you just this video, then we'll be out of here. Well, I grew up in an alcoholic family, long history of alcoholism. Um, I thought it didn't seem that big a deal to me. I didn't know was, alcoholism was uh, so prevalent in my family, it was always just normal to me. My first drink, first time I got drunk was 14, 15, somewhere in that time frame, and I just loved it. And uh, I was so far into it. I remember when I got my driver's license, I had my driver's license for two hours, and we already had beer in the car, and I got pulled over. We hit it under the seats, did not get caught that time, and we just went around, just took off with our day there. Uh, through my years of uh, teenager into young adult after graduation, um, didn't really have a, a problem with the law with it or anything like that, so I thought I was okay. Um, I end up getting married young. Uh, we're going through our marriage. Uh, I have anger issues. Um, I have problems with uh, sex, uh, porn. And of course this plays a major, major effect on the marriage. Uh, I, had a, I had a bad view of, you know, respecting women and uh, I didn't even know how bad it was because I grew up that way and uh, you know I, I finally uh, there was one night I went out and I don't know I think it was God speaking to me long before I even believed in God uh, had a went on a binge some buddies I remember being on his front porch uh, and I just broke down and I told my buddy I'm an alcoholic and I don't even know where those words came from they just came out of my mouth and uh, I decided I'm going to go into AA. So, going to my first AA meeting, I had uh, I had some success there at AA. I stayed sober. I did not commit my life to Jesus yet. I didn't believe too much in a higher power. I was more relying on the power of those meetings to keep me sober. I was a dry drunk. Uh, I was still angry. I remember telling my buddy, I hope there's more to life than this. And uh, I just really hope there's more to life than this. I actually started going to church then. I didn't know what church was right. I didn't even know if Jesus was true. And I'll tell you what, I, I just only prayed for the truth to be revealed to me. And it did not take long before Jesus Christ entered my life. I was going through these changes in my life and uh, getting emotional now and freaking my son out because he never seen me cry. And my family thought I was a bit of a Jesus freak. So, because I'm sober now, talking about Jesus, uh, they're thinking, what's going on with Jeff? It's a little freaky. It was just incredible. Um, went through a powerful, you know, terrible divorce. Uh, that was actually terrible to go through, but at the end of the day, it changed me in ways I never would have probably changed on my own, to be honest with you. Uh, took my uh, faith, my recovery to a new level. I have this calling now, I need to tell people about it. He knew what was coming 
next for my younger uh, sisters and my brother. They had seen my, uh, my recovery, they seen my walk, and I was able to uh, walk them through the process and uh, get them uh, clean and sober today um, through this uh, whole journey. One of, the, one of the best things that's happened is I got to baptize my dad. Uh, it gets me a little emotional. Uh, about five years ago, because uh, he had uh, he was on quite a journey himself of addiction, and uh, he uh, came to me and wanted to be baptized, and he's just uh, he's a changed man today. Um, he's a completely different man today than uh, the man I remember growing up, and uh, incredible changes there through through Jesus Christ. You know, the, uh, it's incredible what Jesus has done for me. When I look at my childhood and what I've gone through and where I am today, today my life is incredibly blessed. Um, the relationship with my children is incredible. Uh, the relationship with my wife is incredible. Um, we're blessed beyond uh, anything I can express. Um, and it all came through getting saved. My name is Jeff Mitchell, and I am Metro. And, and friends, uh, Jeff is an amazing man, totally redeemed. But let me tell you something. It does not come from his own strength. It comes from the power of God who is found through the pages of the Scripture. That's the story of God that is written to us, is that life can be heading in all kinds of crazy directions. But God keeps reaching toward us and loving us and pulling at us, and he gives us second and third and fourth and 500 chances. He's a good God who loves us. That is the story of the pages of the Bible. Amen? Amen. Um, I hope that you're challenged today. Um, I hope that if you came into here and you kind of had some doubts and questions, maybe even you're a Christian and you just don't realize the value of the scripture. Maybe you've had your doubts. Maybe today um, you'll be encouraged. Maybe today that you'll realize that your faith does have reasons. And if you're skeptical, um, continue on this journey with us. We're going to talk about some other things next week. We're going to talk about this idea of how can a good God allow people to suffer so much? How can a good God do that? We're going to talk about that next week. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, we come before you and just pause right now just to say thank you for giving us your word. I believe it is your word. And I pray that your spirit would speak to each one in this room about the value of, of the Bible. It is extraordinary. It is different. It is special because it comes from you. I believe that. And I pray, God, that we would never neglect that, that we would be serious about knowing you through your word. You've given us a gift, God. In Jesus' name, we say amen.